Welcome to Life Distilled. Here we explore the world of craft spirits and introduce you to the people and products that are making this world a better place, one small batch at a time. It is Zen and the art of micro distillation, your window into craft culture and your connection to the makers, creators, achievers, and thought leaders who are charting a path forward, cocktail in hand. This is Life Distilled. Welcome to another episode of Life Distilled. Once again, we're here at Montgomery Distillery, and today we're honored to have as our guest, Dr. Steve Running, Professor Emeritus from the University of Montana, and at one point, a member of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. Dr. Running, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, this is great fun. So... First of all, we always like to start off with making note of the fact that we've got a delicious cocktail here from Montgomery Distillery. I had the Bloody Mary. Seemed like a good thing for a cool day today. What did you have? You have to remind me. Damiana Deremy. Was yeah, that it? Damiana Deremy. And I failed to look to see what's in there, but it looks delicious. Yeah. It's real good for a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> So with this program, as I was kind of telling you before, we like to apply the notion of, of distilling and the idea of distilling your life down to all sorts of aspects of one's life, distilling your life down to what is, uh, you know, kind of the, basically the most essential to you as a person. And we find these conversations are better over a cocktail, which is why we have one here. <laughs> but let me just get right to this right out of the gate, because this is what uh, inspired me to want to have you on here. As a recognized expert in global ecosystem monitoring... Is the Earth's climate changing, in your opinion? Oh, yeah. yeah. The wind's howling outside today in Missoula, Montana, and it's, uh, it's cold, so it feels like winter. But Well, it should be. It's February what, 11th. 11th. Yeah. So it, it ought to be cold right now, and it is. Yeah. How is the climate changing, in your opinion? Yeah, I, I, I don't want to get too pedantic on something like a podcast like this. But certainly from all of our IPC summaries, uh, we know that the Earth's been trapping all this extra uh, heat energy for 50 years at least as greenhouse gases have gone up. And so it's different, or of course, in different parts of the, on Earth, but there, it's absolutely certain that it's warming up. Around Montana, we're warming, we've warmed up about two degrees in the last 50 years, just as an example. Is that Fahrenheit? Yeah. And that's yearly average temperature? Yeah, that's annual average temperature. Gotcha. And so this is, this is well underway. It isn't something just barely starting. Uh, certainly long. Uh, we've been following this. Uh, I got here in 1979. So it's virtually the whole time I've lived in Missoula. Global warming has been getting going and, and, and underway. What do you think is causing it? You mentioned greenhouse gases. Oh, um, yeah. The physics of this is really quite cut and dried. A guy named Svante Arrhenius got the Nobel Prize in 1896 for explaining this. So this is physics that's well understood, that there's certain molecules, uh, CO2 and methane uh, are molecules of this type that let 
sunlight through the atmosphere, but block some of the thermal energy coming back up. And so, as I say, this has been well understood, and we know CO2 and methane are going up in the atmosphere from burning fossil fuels. And so this is really, to scientists, this is just a matter-of-fact situation. No mystery here. I wanted to circle back to our theme of life distilled because as we, again, as we were talking right before we started, you know, what, one of the things I'm aiming to do with this podcast is bring people on who have really dedicated their lives to maybe a particular pursuit and kind of distilled their lives down either down to one, you know, field of endeavor or a certain way of living. So how is it that you got into science in the first place? You mentioned you came here in 1979, but what, what brought you into science? Well, I was a forest ecologist in my graduate training, and so I went to Oregon State and then PhD work at Colorado State. And when I came to Missoula, I was hired to teach tree biology. And so I wasn't a global climate scientist at all in my earlier work. But I did start very early on into computer modeling of ecosystems. And when NASA decided to start this program of Mission to Planet Earth, as it was called at the time. There was really almost no ecologist that could think globally, but I at least could think with a computer model. So that got me in the door with NASA, you might say, in about 1981. And uh, after that, just progressively, what NASA wanted to study was big stuff, you know, the Earth uh, the biosphere is a complete system. And so I really spent most of the 1980s thinking myself, how do I get beyond the single leaves that I measured? I look at this. I measured twigs on trees with a little cuvette, just about like this for my PhD work. And so uh, to go from thinking about this twig, how this, the transpiration rate of this little twig to how the whole biosphere works is what I spent most of the 1980s thinking my way through. Oh, yeah. Now, that's exciting stuff. You pointed out something in there. I'd heard on another podcast, I can't recall who it was, maybe Tim Ferriss or, or Joe Rogan, they had Stuart Brand on, and he was talking about this campaign that he had done with this button after the blue marble photograph came. Mm -hmm. And this is actually a pretty new thing in human history to be able to even have the context of that image of the earth, you know, as this little ball, this yeah. marble floating out in the world and us yeah. thinking about it as, oh, wait, hold on. That's the whole deal? That's us. That's it. That's just us right there. And you've kind of seen that all the way from then to now, you know, maybe yeah. 10 years later. How do you think the mindset of the world has changed or can we wrap our minds around that even yet today? It really is true that when I was a kid, what you thought about the world was looking at Rand McNally maps. Yeah. And so we had never been able to get away from Earth far enough to see it as a single entity mm -hmm. when I was a kid. And so it was only in the late 1970s as, uh, well, and of course, uh, as the Apollo program and getting to the moon was our first look back to see the Earth as a, as a whole unit. And I think that's why that's always been 
called one of the most iconic pictures in history was uh, earth rise of the earth coming up over the lunar horizon with the astronauts there and nowadays it's so easy for people everybody can look at google earth there's satellite images all the time the nightly weather forecast has satellite images so nowadays it really is pretty easy to think at a large scale at, at some level because those sort of images are all over but that's all happened within the last 30 years yeah do you think that people have come along with that or and that their context has? Because it seems like we're still having a difficult time thinking about managing or dealing with the earth as this one little... I think people still pretty much think about their backyard most yeah. of the time. Right. And so even though they, they at some intellectual level can look at these big images or pictures of the whole earth, I think when it gets down to it, they still... Their hands-on sense of the world around them is pretty much what they see out their window. I know when I give public lectures and I tell them that when Mount St. Helens went off, the ash cloud came over Missoula, and we could see the ash right on the street. Well, 12 days later, it came back around. And so I said, think of what that tells us. That tells us that the atmosphere goes around the entire planet in less than two weeks. Oh, wow. And that tells us how, why, if China emits carbon way over there, it's here a week later. And so we're all in this together because the atmosphere is mixing around the entire planet at a very rapid rate. And people are always quite amazed to hear that. Yeah, I'm a little uh, surprised to hear that it makes it all the way around. I had been flying in an airplane to Alaska and you could see the smog from mm -hmm. China floating yeah. up towards Alaska when you looked way out to sea. Yep. And I remember that Mount St. Helens day, that, that's a day that sticks in my mind because we were up on a mountain getting firewood and we, <laughs> we you know, no radios, no cell phones right. at that time. We're way up the Yak, Montana, in the middle of nowhere. And we looked to the horizon and just this big, dark, ominous, as far yeah. as the eye could see. And my parents were like, we better get down from this mountain. And so we, by the time we got home, which was about 20 miles, you know, the ash was falling right there in the yard. And, was, and you turn on the radio and it's all anybody was talking about. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I was in a similar situation. I was out with a field trip and a bunch of students and had the radio turned off. And we saw this cloud coming that didn't look like a thundercloud. It didn't look quite right. And then as it got to us, it wasn't cold. It was mm -hmm. warm. And the minute you turn the radio on, you found out why. You knew what but was happening. But for about 10 or 20 minutes there, as you first noticed it, till you turned the radio on, you were pretty clueless. What is going on? Yeah, it was a remarkable time, and it, it, <laughs> it sticks in my mind for sure. Yeah. I think what, something you said there was real key to the conversation in that people can really look at the, their backyard mostly is all they can do. And, and I think that's why we hear comments about the weather come up in this conversation about climate change. Yep. And so you'll hear all the time folks say, well, I mean, it's snowing like crazy in D.C. It's cold. This is the worst winter we ever had, 40 feet of snow. Obviously, the climate is not changing. People stop me in the grocery store and know what I do around town. This is a small town. Yeah. 
and they say, uh, Dr. Running, it's cold as hell. What's with the global warming? And I think they do it three quarters in, as a joke, but I think it's still a point of confusion for a lot of people because they imagine if it's warming, it just every single day ought to be warmer. And of course, that isn't true to begin with that every single day is warmer. But the other thing they always tend to forget is they're only looking at Missoula, Montana. The very day that it's 10 degrees here in Australia, it's boiling hot. And so this is global warming, not just local warming that the science is, is about. And uh, the other side of the world can be having heat waves while we have a blizzard. And that's totally expected. Yeah. It's, I mean, all these, all these fluid things uh, in the planet, like the ocean and the atmosphere, they're always trying to balance all that. So it would make a lot of sense to me, uh, just a lay person with high school physics and chemistry yep. say that, you know, if it's getting hotter here, well, at some point that's going to move and it's going to shift something else and make right. that want to try to balance itself all out across yeah. the board so that it can hit an equilibrium somewhere, maybe in the averages. The argument that we often hear on when you kind of get in that group of folks that are disbelievers of this is that, well, the earth goes through cycles and at one point there were dinosaurs and it was hot everywhere and it was really humid and the entire earth was, mm -hmm. you know, 82 degrees. What's, uh, what's your take on, on that position? What's well, the flaw in that thinking? Yeah, you know, we've, there, there's an array of denier claims, uh, I'll call them, that have been well-worn. They've been around for years. There's a really good website that one by one takes each one of these ideas and says, well, here's, here's the reality. And it's called skepticalscience.com. And so it's, it's actually comes out of Australia and they just one by one go through all the different queries and arguments that are put up. And because these have been hashed over a million times. And of course there's been natural variation forever. Uh, some of the most repeated variation uh, comes from these Milankovitch cycles, which is literally just little wobbles in the Earth's orbit oh, yeah. that are completely well known and understood. Some of the bigger events in history we know are from catastrophic events, and the two that are common in the Earth history are gigantic volcanoes, and asteroid strikes. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's what wiped out the dinosaurs. And so we know variation occurs. We better hope one of those kind of variations doesn't occur. But you know, these scientists have sorted all this out years ago. And what we're doing now is we're generating a pulse of, of trapped energy in the system uh, that's faster by a factor of a million than any normal natural variability. I like to tell people that the coal and oil in the ground took 100 million years to accumulate and solidify, and we're digging it all up in 100 years, right. burning it. So 100 million years going in and 100 years going out. And let's talk about system imbalances. I mean, that just inherently tells you that... Uh, that system is going to be imbalanced tremendously when all of that carbon comes back out in 100 years. Because you're essentially moving it from potential energy into kinetic energy in the form of heat in the system? Yeah, well, we're, we're moving it from, I, I guess, dormant chemical energy 
in the ground to active thermal energy as you burn it and put it in the atmosphere. And so 100 million years worth, you got to remember coal and oil is photosynthesis of plants. Uh-huh. Millions of years ago. So it's basic old photosynthesis, but it's a hundred million years worth. And of course, it's been chemically transformed uh, underground over the eons. And we're digging all that up and putting it back in the atmosphere and, and a million times faster than any natural system would do. I was discussing climate change with a friend of mine and he said, I just don't believe it. And my response was, so you think that you're more knowledgeable than these folks that have dedicated their entire lives and they spend every day, just like you spend every day, doing financial stuff or yeah. IPOs, and you're an expert about that. They spend all their day doing, and yet you doubt them and even discredit their, their, their work. What do you think that is all about? Well, I, I think uh, being, having watched this for, I've been giving public talks for, probably close to 20 years now on this. I think the real cornerstone of this whole issue is that um, our whole lifestyles has been built on fossil fuels and we've all enjoyed a tremendously better life than before fossil fuels came along. An awful lot of people get their paycheck directly or indirectly from the fossil fuel industry and related industries. So I can see that this is a threat, an existential threat to a lot of people's sense of well-being. I can understand that. And yet the thing is, it doesn't change the physics any. <laughs> and so uh, it is too bad that uh, in, in something like this, people, the thought of what we have to do to get out of it seems so impossible to them that it's easier to just deny the whole thing rather than try to think through what we ought to be doing next. You know, I think you nail it uh, there. I mean, that's my, at least my own opinion that just what you said is exactly right, that it's so frightening what what is required of us Yeah, that it's much easier just to yep. say, well, that sounds like bunk and, uh, you know, it, it won't be too bad. Um, I read your piece about the five stages of climate grief, yeah, which I uh, found cited quite a, by quite a few folks. Bill Nye had done a little bit on it, and there was oh, a yeah. there was a lot of it it's floating around. Been around, I posted that in 2007, and it's funny. I tried to send it to the New York Times as an editorial. That didn't work. No. And in today's world, you just post it. Yes. And, and if the thinking is good, then it gets around. Right. And so. No, it was wonderful. And I, I personally have definitely gone through the five stages. Yeah. And I try to put myself in that fifth stage, yep. but I often find myself in three and four, you know, in, in anger and in... Uh, yep, I slide backwards and depression. Time, I'm sorry to say. I find, I personally, like just a week ago or so, I really got anxious about the whole matter. Just, I was like, why am I going to work to do something that is... I don't know that it's helping anything in particular. It's just getting, yeah. it's just perpetuating the system when there's all this work to be done, yeah. figuring out this problem. And I, I just, I almost wanted to just sit on my hands and do nothing. What do you think we should do? What kind of strategy could we implement? Well, it is pretty easy to get pretty fatalistic, especially in this last year of politics where we've got national leaders that are doing everything they possibly can to turn backwards every single aspect about energy transition that they can get a hold of. And it can be 
I guess I've had this asked to be many, many times in I'm various sure. ways after giving climate talk. Dr. Running, how can you just think about this all day, every day? And, and uh, the first thing I'll admit is I get times where I'll bet I'm clinically depressed and I just don't know it or care to admit it. I like to hope it doesn't last too long, but I mean, I get pretty bummed out sometimes, especially when certain events occur. I've had a couple of friends that are ER docs, and I've asked them kind of a similar question. How do you go to work? And the minute you get to work, there's just blood and guts everywhere, and people are wheeled in in front of you that are just, you know, near death. And how do you do it? Why, how, why don't you just crack? And they say that what you do is you zone in kind of a professional hypnosis where you lock yourself into your job. My job is to save this person, and you just don't let emotions and things like that derail you. You focus so hard on getting your job done that you just you don't allow your brain to drift away into how sorry this situation is. And of course, a lot of their patients do die right in front of them. And I wonder if I do the same and don't really know the psychology of it is that I have focused for a long time on just studying and, and working on what's, what's going on in the earth system, what's humanity need to start getting at it. And I keep a level of professional detachment that, um, must be kind of the same as the way these ER docs do it. Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. I really like what you said there because I really feel the same way. Also, my wife and I got into this heated discussion about uh, this topic and I was just like, we, everybody just needs to stop. Like nobody go to work. We just all stop for a moment and do a big reboot. And she was like, that's never going to work. Never gonna We're going to, I mean, that would be chaos, Armageddon. Yeah. But then I found this little bit of light of hope, although... Uh, I don't see it in implementation or really happening right now, but where you said there's a need for visionary national leadership, a Marshall level plan of national focus and commitment. So everyone is contributing and the lifestyle changes are broadly shared and become a new norm. And I would really tend to agree. Where do you think we're going to find a leader like that? That's willing to step up there and say, there's nothing else that I'm going to talk to you guys about other than the fact yeah. that we need to change our lifestyle here. Well, you know, I think we already have some of those leaders. And the first mistake we don't want to fall into is expect that our president is always going to be that leader because they haven't been in the past. Even Bill Clinton wasn't all that engaged with climate at the time. And, of course, George Bush certainly wasn't. And then Obama only came into it later after he'd worked on... Uh, things like healthcare, and of course now we have this. And so looking to the president for leadership, it'd be nice if that would, be, would occur, but it isn't essential. We have somebody like the Pope, that uh, billions of people is a global leader. He is fully engaged on this topic. We have other national leaders around the world. As you get more regional and local, we have some like Jerry Brown in California that is fully engaged in this. And so much of what the U.S. does is it follows California on trend setting of all types, good and bad. Right. And so we have some leaders already. We have actually 
maybe I'm just have to think this through to, so I don't go nuts. <laughs> but we've made a lot of progress in the last decade or so. Yeah. Think of LED light bulbs. Those are unbelievable how important those are in reducing electricity demand. There's something like a trillion light bulbs in the U.S. A trillion. And as we swap each one of those out for an LED, then that's a massive amount of energy saved. LEDs weren't even around meaningfully 10 years ago. Electric cars are well on the way. Yeah. Well on the way. You know, we have other industries like home building that already are very highly energy efficient if you choose to do so. Mm -hmm. The technology is really already there. And so despite all the pushback from particularly the fossil fuel world in the last decade, we've gone a long ways. Yeah. Well, I, I do find optimism uh, outside of the political realm in, in a lot of industries. Yeah, and just don't. I've heard it said that government leads from behind. <laughs> yeah. That they wait until they hear what the populace is interested in, and then they say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what we ought to do. And then they claim that they thought it up. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think it might be a bit of a fallacy for us to keep expecting government to lead. It'd be nice, but it isn't essential. And I think so much of what we see now, especially now with a Trump presidency, is uh, NGOs and private industry. I love the way our tech companies, one by one, are just saying we aren't buying any electricity except from renewable sources. That forces the industry into renewable power, even if the local governments are ambivalent. And so the, I think what we're seeing now is that sort of leverage being put into the market because we're, we're not getting leadership from government. But that's happening and it's real and it's getting big. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of power in the consumer. I mean, that is why I got into this whole craft spirits thing was because I saw that having highly centralized industries wasn't the best model in my opinion and that these craft spirit guys were distributing the yep. di production capacity yep. of distilling across landscapes. So now Missoula has a still. And so if all of a sudden we're all alone in the world, <laughs> we could bring some wheat here and make some whiskey yep. and put that up for the winter. Yep. And, and I thought that that was at least one little step in the right direction. And I thought, well, the more of this that could happen, the better. You know, it's funny that in other countries... They never got away from their local food and drink. Right. They always kept local bakeries and local farms and local markets and local breweries. And it was America that went in after World War II to, to Wonder Bread and Folgers coffee sort of and Budweiser beer. And we had to learn our lesson that that stuff's crap and then come back to where the, most of the rest of the world never left uh, the idea of having local food every chance they got. We definitely went all in on uh, on a barrel of oil, I would say. Yeah. Because that's really, particularly when you start to talk about products like beer and whiskey and wine, because you're literally hauling water. Yeah, that's true. In the case of Budweiser. Yep. The, 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 if yeah, you, it's almost all water. If you had to do that with a horse, you wouldn't do that. No, you're right. Because you, can't, you wouldn't be able to do it. It, would, it yeah. would cost too much. But here with a barrel of oil, I could put a gallon of diesel in. That means I could haul like 80, 100, I don't know, 8,000 gallons of water. Who knows? Oh, yeah. With Transportation one is part of what's gotten 
incredibly efficient, which has been to our advantage also, but uh, that has made things that would have been ridiculous a uh, hundred years ago commonplace. Of I remember as a kid, I didn't have this time of year fresh vegetables much at all. Right. Yeah. I'd- and we were a middle class family. We weren't poor, you know, desperately poor or anything. We were living in Seattle, and yet in the dead of winter, you were eating frozen vegetables. Mm-hmm. Is what I remember. And so this whole life we have now where you have fresh vegetables brought up from Mexico and California all winter long is a manifestation of that. You bet. I've noted in all my research on the markets and things, an interesting thing that's occurred with uh, breweries and distilleries in that the actual number of them has followed the exact trend of the cost of a barrel of oil. <laughs> So there was thousands of breweries and distilleries in America in 1880. And then they just started going down, down, down until they just bottomed out in 1980, say. All we had was Bud, Miller, and Coors. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, uh, (laughs) when oil prices start climbing up, you see the number of these start to go. And then in 2008, when all of a sudden a whole bunch of guys my age found themselves unemployed, they looked around and they said, huh, what should we do? Let's start a brewery because they're sitting yeah. at one anyways drinking. They're like, well, we can start one of these ourselves. Yep. And then you yeah. see the numbers really skyrocket. Yeah. And I really think it has a lot to do with those two other factors. There's a lot of talk if you read that, oh, you know, our tastes have evolved. We all got bored with Budweiser. We didn't like, we wanted something more interesting. But I don't think that that's actually the, the real motive force. I believe the motive force is economics. Well, I think the American taste buds bottomed out, as I say, with... Wonder Bread and Budweiser and Folgers Coffee sort of uh, mass market factory food. And enough people certainly started traveling to other countries and realizing that in other countries they ate fresh local food all the time and had never left that. And I remember so distinctly being in Spain Geez, 25 years ago, and in the little village, there was just a little spigot at the winery, and everybody had their their one-liter little carafe, and they would just fill their carafe and put a, this was before euros, must have been a peso, put a few pesos down on the honor system, and so they're drinking local wine always. And so I think there's something about our palates of have wised up, and I think your generations has pushed that a lot. And because if all you're trying to do is maximize economic efficiency, then factory food wins. If quality and flavor doesn't count, then just dollars per calorie, it's going to win because that's what they optimized and that's what we ended up with. Yeah. Yeah, I I certainly can't argue with that. I've argued uh, amongst the folks in the distilling industry that where I see that going in the future is you're going to have two two avenues and you're going to have one where people are only going to spend their money on a value proposition, which is I want it to taste a certain way or I want it to be local or I want it to be micro or I want it to be from XYZ organic, whatever Mm -hmm. that might be. And then you're going to have an automated factory that's going to be at almost zero marginal cost and they're just going to be pumping out pure alcohol putting it in a you know in a bottle and selling it for five dollars well and i think we already see that yeah yeah here in missoula people actually still buy bud light i can't believe 
why they would, but there's, there is a fraction of the populace that that's perfectly fine, and it is half the price of, of, a, of a craft beer, and it's really just quantity over quality. And so I, I think that split in the market probably is, is already occurring in American life, and it'll probably stay that way. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And the important thing is that we now have the choice of high-quality local food and drink, whereas 30 years ago there, there wasn't much choice. No, there wasn't. Nope. Yeah, when I was a kid, you were... You were excited to have a lucky lager, and uh, you were That's just right. you were just happy to have it. Yeah, you didn't worry about what it was or where it came from. And yeah, you know, I was mentioning to you earlier that uh, one of the things that got me into craft spirits was this redistribution of production capacity. Mm-hmm. And that not only does it it put the capacity out there so that there's shorter travel routes, so you're hauling the wheat shorter distance from. Hysham here to Missoula and you're making your spirits here. And then I only just drive up from Hamilton to buy a bottle. And so that, that creates a, well, a lot less gasoline burned, I guess is Mm -hmm. the only thing it really does that I think is important to our conversation just to minimize that carbon footprint. But the other thing that I think that it does is that it puts production capacity in local areas so that there's resilience to the economy. Mm -hmm. Let's say you have a hurricane Katrina or hurricane Sandy or some other gigantic event and now all of a sudden you can't get anything from the Wonder Bread factory because it's the only place that makes bread. What do you think about that? Do you think that there's value to that? Do you think that do you think that climate is going to get so bad, doctor, that we are going to be happy to have the ability to produce things here in the five valleys? I think I think you're certainly at a higher level of vulnerability if you're lifestyle is completely contingent on things from far away and without identifying what all those things might be. I think there is some some resilience built into, especially something as fundamental as just food. I, I think the same thing with energy. Yeah. That uh, we're way better off if we have and can generate energy, at least survival level energy of our own right here. However, I Probably in today's world, I don't, I don't want to overstate that issue as much as I think um, smaller batch production of most anything means that you can pay attention to quality of the inputs mm-hmm. in a way that uh, I just can't imagine the, the, the big factories can. And everything from producing you know, wheat for bread to uh, growing cows for for dairy and for meat. I know that as you get bigger and bigger production efficiencies, you just kind of cut the corners of quality in response for efficiency in a hundred different ways. And I think being able to bring things back to a more human scale and where humans are actually looking at uh, all these factors involved in the production of the food and beverage is going to end up with a higher quality product. Um, maybe not every time, but I'll bet nine times out of 10. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And I had Ryan Montgomery, who owns the distillery that we're at here on the podcast, and he spoke largely to that in that that's his goal for his distillery, for his business, mm-hmm. is he never wants to leave that. And if he could get to a point where he can create a good livelihood for himself and the people that work for him and be able to maintain 
that oversight on both the process right. and the raw materials, the yeah. inputs that you were talking about, so that he can make that quality product. That's that's exactly the sweet spot he wants to be. Right. He took a lot of inspiration from, as you were speaking to earlier, when he went to Europe and he was going around Bavaria and he would find yep. these little tiny distilleries and breweries. He yep. would find them in Belgium. They were 300, 400 years old, still yep. making beer in like this wooden vat. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, why haven't you sold to Stella Artois? And they're like, well, what are you even talking about? You know, let's yeah. make beer for my village. And that's right. it. And I'm happy doing yeah. that. And I don't have to aspire to anything more than that. One of the things that I think has been a fault of American style capitalism is this idea that whatever the size of your company, that you somehow just have to get bigger. Right. That you get bigger or die. And I read that in economics literature all the time, and it just makes me want to throw up. As a scientist, as an ecologist that studies systems and systems that are balanced and systems that are imbalanced, this idea of growth forever doesn't make any sense to me conceptually. Right. And uh, as, well, I love what you're saying there because I totally agree. And I use this argument both with distillers. And with my friends who don't believe that the climate is changing or, or more importantly, yeah. that the earth is getting warmer. Because I say, it's, listen, guys, it's a closed system, essentially. Yep. It very much is in, in alcohol, but even in the earth. So you got sun coming in and only so much bleeds off. And so if you are sitting in there and you start a fire, mm-hmm. is it going to get warmer or not? <laughs> and yeah. with distillers, the yeah. point is that, okay, I understand you want to grow and there's a point that you need to grow too. But if you don't put a ceiling on that, now you're just biting into somebody else's market. And if you're all doing that, ultimately, don't you run out of customers? Because there is a flat rate and it hasn't changed in 30 years on how much alcohol gets consumed in America. That's right. Edward Abbey had a classic quote. What was it? Uncontrolled growth is, is the strategy of a cancer cell. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I, th- I think this is all too often... Part of the problem of American capitalism is if you have a comfortable size business that's profitable and uh, I'll say economically balanced and sustainable, why do you have to get bigger? Uh, and yet it seems so often that what you hear is at whatever level you're at, you should be striving to get even bigger and even bigger. And then the dream of your entire life is to be bought out by Google. And you go, oh, man. And I, I wonder where that, that came from, where that narrative began. You're older than I. It's been around my entire life, so I don't know a time when it wasn't. But it, yeah. it seems maybe even you know pre-World War II or something, it was okay that you started a business and your plan was to give that to your kids and their plan was that they were going to assume it. Yeah. And everybody was going to be pretty happy just living in this. And now it's like if... If you don't go get out of the house and go to college and find your own way and move to a different town and start some other business, and if I don't scale and exit, the world's going to fall apart. Yeah, it's basically capitalism gone berserk as far as I'm concerned. And, and I, I think it's something that the world's going to have to come to a different strategy sooner or later because we really do have a finite planet with finite resources and we already have seven billion people and a couple billion more are on the way in the next 50 years and this completely uncontrolled growth non-strategic just uh, you know growth uh, at all costs just can't go forever 
Well, it certainly can, to the point I was trying to make earlier, because it comes at the cost of somebody else's loss. Yeah. Or the or at the loss of some input resources that you're that you need. There you go. Uh, and so I I really wish that in economics there was more attention spent to uh, what you might call sustainable or balanced economics. It seems like all you hear out of most economics is we got to grow two percent per year, and boy, we better rev it up to three percent a year, and. Uh, and you read it every day in the news. Yeah. These exact statements. Well, we were 2% last year. What we really need to do is get it up to 3.5%. And, and, uh, and that just, as a systems ecologist, I just cringe and say, this can't go on forever. I'm not sure if you're going to break the system and it'll collapse in shambles or if it'll just somehow asymptote somewhere. But this doesn't seem good in the long run. Well, it does seem like a lot of those things are being pushed off as as externalities or external costs oh, yeah. that aren't being yeah, accounted for. So yeah. it's either environment, like as you mentioned, it's either environmental degradation, degradation, right. or it's uh, raising rising global temperatures or resource so, depletion. So we're putting that cost somewhere. It's coming at the cost of something. All that well, growth. That's it has certainly to be. the situation with climate change. Is is all the carbon emitters that are generating. The problem of which all of us are, are some of certainly are some extent. I drove up here. Um, yeah, we're not paying the cost of the damage in, in any way, shape, or form. Uh, if I was uh, king for the day, for one day, and could push through a carbon tax, it'd be the best thing that we could do. Is now that we've just put another trillion dollars onto the national credit card, <laughs> the best way to fix that would be a nice carbon tax that would value and price carbon truly for the consequences it's generating. And then that would then tip the scales so all sorts of less carbon intensive activities up and down the entire economy would just automatically start shifting to, to better efficiency. And it really would help economics, which in so many ways is the culprit here. It would help normal economics to be the solution mm -hmm. because simply by costing the carbon emission in an appropriate way, we would find all sorts of ways to avoid carbon emission, of which we're just scratching the surface so far. We definitely need to incentivize that, it seems. To um, me. The carbon taxes... To me, the very much the cleanest way to do that. Yeah. A couple of uh, just uh, almost for laughs. I ran into a gentleman at the coffee shop in Hamilton. He was wearing this hat. It said CO2 on it. And he had a college chemistry book. He was a gentleman, you know, in between our age, say, I had to ask him. I said, so what, where, what's your position here? And his position was that carbon CO2 was great because it meant more plants. And this was, this was a boon to us. Any thoughts about that? You've heard that one. That's what I study is plant physiology in graduate school. And that, and that might wash if every other factor was equal. Uh, but the problem is CO2 is also causing warming. Warming is causing more plant water stress. In a number of cases, more uh, nutrient stress. And so... Uh, the climate part of the CO2 is not as benign as what he's saying. The, the P 
pure physiology, he's correct. Greenhouses double and triple CO2 all the time to get plants to grow faster. That was his point. And so, uh, uh, but they're also controlling the internal climate of that greenhouse. And uh, the problem is the external CO2 is perturbing our climate in a way that's not going to help plants everywhere. It'll help them up in the far boreal north, but uh, the tropics are going to be, well, even here, we're going to be, we are aridifying, if I can use that term, already uh, in Montana, that uh, our annual uh, rainfall has not gone up, but our temperatures have gone up two degrees. So I like to, to people in Missoula, I say, our climate is slowly shifting to one more like Salt Lake City. Absolutely. That's basically where we're going over the next 50, 60, 70 years. Yeah. Prior to this, I spent the last 20 years working in fire management, and I absolutely have seen this. Uh, I, yeah. I use the example of Colorado as what we're more moving towards, but uh, Salt Lake is, is yeah. probably just as applicable. Yep. Um, and I've definitely seen it, and I've, I've seen that every year we were fighting bigger and oh, sure. more fires, fires, and it was... Uh, really clearly showing yeah and it's largely driven by and i appreciate that you said this driven by by tree stress you know the Mm -hmm. the hot days and things are are contributing but what the largest problem is is that they're the trees are all stressed out so live trees will carry fire yeah they just run out of water so another thing that's uh that comes up in this conversation you know we got all this technology technology is so great it solved all of our problems in the past what do you think about climate tampering? We're going to spread sodium. We're going to put dilithium crystals oh, yeah. in the... I've, I have a couple of my, my science friends that are doing some of that research. None of them believe that that'll save the day. They're just doing the research because they need to know what level of, of possibility there might be. And the big thing is, first, who would make the decisions on how much to cool down the climate. Uh, Second, as CO2 continues to go up, the biggest one is ocean acidification will continue full blast. So you'll end up with sterile oceans everywhere. And and so um, it is, and and the other thing is putting up all that geoengineering is what it's called. Mm -hmm. If you're going to spend that much money, why don't you just spend it on solar panels? Yeah. And so any of those kind of geoengineering solutions are an amount of money so huge that we could actually just solve the problem the straightforward way. And that would also eliminate the potential unknown consequences that the geoengineering may cause, which may be just as bad as burning all the fossil fuels that are known. We don't know of yet. Right. And and so you recognize that the people pushing that are the fossil fuel crowd that want to keep selling their product. I think you're probably right. I want, it's been a, a theme of mine lately. I'm not necessarily good at it because I'm oftentimes got my Bloody Mary is half empty sort of guy, but I've been trying to be more positive. And one of the things I noted in this article that I read earlier today, I was mentioning to you about the book, the book of the future. It was so positive about this outlook and it, it gave kids who are reading it this vision that they could carry through their lives yeah. of this amazing future that they're going to create. And then I don't know about you, but when I look around the last book or movie that I saw that showed a positive image of what the future may be, 
was maybe Zootopia. I'm not, yeah. I'm not really sure, but yeah. don't you think we need that narrative oh, yeah. to help Psychologists us? Psychologists have been lecturing us climate scientists now for years that, that all our negative information, while it may be true, is not uh, incentivizing the public to get on board. And so a number of us have tried. That's part of why I wrote, wrote that five stages of climate grief years ago. We're all trying to, well, I, I, maybe I should just speak for myself. Um, I definitely, in my public talks, uh, nowadays it's about two-thirds of it is the climate science and the climate trends, but the final third of the talk is all about here's all the things we can be doing right now with today's technology and today's opportunities that if, if we would uh, adopt in a major way would get us a long ways. And so I, I've learned that you don't just end with the climate, you end with here's all the potential that we could be getting to work with right now. And certainly when I talk to college students, I, I like to joke with them that all of us when we're 20 want to burn down the establishment and build a new world. Well, in this case, we really need you all to do that. And so we really need the college students of today uh, and the Gen Xers of today to take over the world sooner rather than later. Because I, I have to admit my generation doesn't have enough guts to make the changes. They're too too much still wed to the fossil fuel life. And I think we're more of the problem than we're ever going to be the solution. And it's the younger generations that I think can change to a different lifestyle perfectly happily and not know the difference because they wouldn't know the way it used to be and be able to adopt a, a lot of different things that... Uh, were unheard of. Just to, as a small example, when I was a kid, you counted the days till you hit 16 and got a driver's license. I hear nowadays a lot of kids don't get around to getting a driver's license till they're 21 or 22 because they don't much care if they drive or not. They just Uber themselves back and forth. And that, as an attitude for a whole generation, is a an illustration of a change in lifestyle that my generation could never do. Uh, we all just have to go get in our car and drive everywhere. And yet the, this younger generation already is making that transition in a lot of the bigger cities particularly uh, voluntarily. And I think it's an example to me of, of lifestyle shifts that the next generation's uh, need to, and I, I think we'll be able to do, but the old-timers are never going to be able to make it. Well, I think they should get themselves a craft spirit. And, That's right. And go ahead and step out of the way. I agree with you that these young folks are the ones that That's take right. this by get the hand. That's right. all to retire right now. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Dr. Running, I couldn't thank you enough for coming on the show. It's been uh, a lot of fun chatting with you. Thank you very much for giving up your afternoon to it. This has been Life Distilled. Join us again next time as we bring you more from the world of craft spirits and small batch lifestyle. Until then, be sure to visit us at microshiner.com 